Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group uh, with General Intellect Unit. Uh, we are in our second session covering Chapter 15, The Higher Management. Uh, so this time, uh, we will hopefully finish off the chapter. Uh, so without uh, further ado, we'll just take a look uh, where we left off. This is uh, the bottom of page 232. If the firm has used divisionalization as a major variety reducing device and has in fact erected a wholly and rigorously pyramidal structure, it will have a fixed and countable number of possible command centers. If each of these has a set of objectives, a further variety reduction, there can be no redundancy of potential command. For if the organizationally wrong unit acquires all the information really needed to take a decision, it will be unable to do so. Its only recourse is to speak to the appropriate group, who, in an organization of this type, will most probably flatly repudiate their approach, that approach as none of your business. The variety engineering has been done in the wrong way. I am able to say that quite flatly because the organization described is designed to be totally non-adaptive. Suppose instead that we ensure the redundancy of potential command. This organizational design will constitute a variety amplifier of high order. Then the organization will take a lot of controlling. The device on the face of things is likely to run amok. We might well then ask, as we have learned to ask, why the brain employs such a mechanism, and why the cortex is not hopelessly overloaded by the proliferating variety so engendered. The answer is that the redundancy of potential command turns out to be the prerequisite capability of any self-organizing system, and that given this prerequisite, the system will indeed organize itself. All right. So, any thoughts on this uh, section, uh, Shane? Go ahead. Yeah, the um, that bit up front about like if if the if the organization is overly divisionalized or overly compartmentalized, there's there's no redundancy of potential command. It's too it's too predetermined, right? And this this thing of like, oh, uh, what what's the maxim from earlier in the book? Like one one person, one boss, right? There's like li linear mono command. There's no redundancy whatsoever, and there's no no potential for anything else to happen. Um, this this uh, this other bit about um, kind of like well, if if you have all this interconnectedness and redundancy, isn't it really hard to control? Oh well, but it's it's the prerequisites for a self-organizing system anyway. Remind me of some of these later, like more recent discoveries in neuroscience or like in kind of brain science, whatever, where we're starting to understand that the brain deliberately kind of operates at the threshold of chaos to like maximize sort of energy transfer and like maximize efficiency and like maximize adaptability. So there's like, I think we instinctively think of this thing of like, oh, well, if it's, if it's very dynamic and chaotic, it's going to like not function very well. But I think the opposite, the opposite is actually kind of the case that like finding, finding the peak in the middle of, um, optimal levels of, um, craziness versus like you know just barely enough control to get along tend seems to actually maximize effectiveness um this also seems linked to 
another sort of kind of bong rip theory about what intelligence really is. That there's a, there's a theory that in, intelligent systems tend to maximize the number of possible actions available to them in the future. It's a kind of temporal entropy that they maximize for. They want the, they want the largest number of possible moves in the future. And apparently when you observe this, this turns out to, like it's kind of empirically confirmable. Like, like when you watch master chess players playing, they play in such a way that they leave their own possibility space wide open. And they, um, you know, and like it's sort of like a predator species pick like vantage points that allow for maximal movement to like, you know, get their prey and so on. So leaving your options wide open seems to actually be the correlation with intelligent behavior, intelligent adaptive behavior. Um, and this does cut against our some of our sort of inherited instincts where like, no, 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 minimizing the number of things that can happen is intelligent. But you no, know, no, it's 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 a self-decapitation to do that. You have to actually maximize the interconnectedness. Right, yes, uh, good point. Uh, so uh, let's go to uh, Jeremy. Uh, and then we'll go to Jake and then to Matt. So I think about Lenin's maxim that uh, every cook can govern. And it's something that I just listened to the um, Cosmonaut podcast about Che Guevara. And Che was very into this idea that everybody should be able to be an administrator and everybody should be able to cut sugarcane and do all those things. And I think that's, you know... It's something that John Boyd was obsessed with in military strategy. The idea that any section of the army could form an army. And therefore, if, you know, any portion of the army broke off, it would form its own command structure and keep going. Uh, I think that's all, that's what Beer is talking about here. And it's so different than the god-emperor-CEO-bastard-on-a-throne model um, that, I, I yeah, that's all I need to say. Yeah, uh, good point. Um, definitely Boyd comes to mind here. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Um, uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I definitely... Like agree with with all that's been said. I think you know it kind of speaks to the idea of like, like you, you know you want to have uh, these the ability to make decisions and enact them as close to where the information is entering into the system as possible. You know you don't want like the factory like something wrong with the factory right to be going up all the way up to the CEO. You want it to be going as Many, as few steps removed from the problem as possible, and, and therefore, like, you'll retain the most information, I think, like, that will let you solve the problem in, in whatever way, like, actually makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I also listen, I also just listened to that, uh, Cosmopod episode, and it was, I, it definitely made me think of, like, Stepford and all this stuff. I mean, they mentioned him as well in the episode, but, like, yeah, and, and there's something to be said for the fact that Cuba is one of the few existing, like, socialist countries that haven't hasn't devolved into capitalism in the same way um obviously it's like a whole different conversation about like what's what's happening now but like there's something to be said for that i think yeah that's uh 
<laughs> whole other question. Uh, so uh, perhaps we'll we'll leave that for another podcast. But uh, it, it, the the sort of experimentation that happened in Cuba um, was uh, very interesting and innovative uh, for for sure. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Then uh, uh, I I think the or at least I hope that the, 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 there is a way to have like these uh, multiple like potential poles of command, but still kind of have like one one person uh, uh, one boss for most people. Because like personally, like I mean, uh, uh, I like just having my direct report who like you know I have a dynamic with, and uh, uh, you know like most communications with like other parts of an organization are kind of mediated through them. Like maybe I have some direct contact, but I mean you know it's it, it, it's it, it's very kind of rattling. I find you know to just kind of uh have to you know l- l- like uh, uh interact with like other parts of organizations and uh um yeah uh, uh, i guess it's kind of a system two thing like you know your project manager or you know if you're uh, uh or you know a, a director of, of, of like a department um uh, uh you know is mostly the person who like you, you know you coordinate through and uh, uh then you know but but they might be you know interfacing with like lots of different um uh, potential like poles of a, a, a higher command um, uh, and also, um, uh, yeah, I was also thinking of, of uh, John Boyd, but also for, uh, for what Shane said about how, like, uh, about like maximizing possible states. Yeah, because uh, uh, part of his other thing was, uh, um, you know, uh, maneuverability is more important than, uh, you know, than speed or uh, or other things. You know, which is how we got um, uh, that whole generation of planes. Um, uh, um, I forget what it's called. It's like energy something. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, energy maneuver or something. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Uh, I think you're referring to the testing process that went into designing the F-15. Is that is that correct? Uh, where it was discovered that the maneuverability uh, was the key, uh, as opposed to having very uh, very fast uh, interceptors. Um, you had these small maneuverable planes. Um, <clears throat> Uh, anyway, I, I think, uh, regarding the, uh, the question of one person, one boss, uh, it, it's, you, I mean, think what you're describing there is more like one department, one boss, right? Uh, one person, one boss is literally, you have a boss for every employee <laughs> who is doing something, uh, a material, uh, and, and and as for the point about it being overwhelming to deal with other sections of an organization, I, th- I think that you're kind of hitting on the right point there because it's really in the absence of a functional system too that that is a major problem because it's just, you know, there's no variety attenuation. It's just this uh, anonymous mass of people and branches that you have to interact with. And you're like, where do I even start to get something done? And that that's probably an indicator of system two breakdown. Um, okay, well, uh, let's let's keep going. Um, so, uh, thus, it comes about that the algodonic controller for both the brain and the firm is the biggest variety reducer of them all. It determines the mode of behavior in animals, including man. There are relatively few and mutually incompatible modes of behavior. McCulloch and his collaborators identified some 15 behavioral modes of vertebrate activity. This, please note, for organisms that are ostensibly capable of enormous variety proliferation. 
excuse me, proliferation. <clears throat> Examples of the major modes are sleeping, eating, drinking, fighting, fleeing, hunting, searching, urinating, defecating, mating. Um, so interestingly, in uh, video games, it's the final three you never see. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones are all there <laughs> final three no uh, the behavioral mode is selected by the reticular formation according to the redundancy of potential command and it proceeds to dominate the behavior of the viable system as I said the modes are mutually exclusive and the fact that an animal busily fleeing may urinate as well does not mean that it is in the urination mode if there are about 15 modes, and if they have the same kind of weighting in the brain, then the selection of one mode by the reticular formation reduces the whole system's variety capability by 14 fifteenths, which is a lot. Now let us apply the lesson to the firm, for indeed it offers what is in many ways the most valuable insight of all. A firm which is well organized on the lines of modern management thinking a firm which is not, that is to say, cripplingly authoritarian, will have to some degree the capability of potential command redundancy. This operates, as hinted earlier, to create a pervasive climate in the human society which constitutes the firm. That, in turn, settles the mode of operation for another epoch of time, and that mode excludes all other possible modes, except, as it were, accidentally on the side. This revelation has explained a great deal to me personally. It conforms exactly to observed behavior, as far as I know it. And yet, until I had the model, the idea was seemingly so implausible that it never crossed my mind. A large number of human beings should, between them, surely maintain an equilibrial outlook. We think of a social group as establishing a via media, uh, so a middle way, and, uh, indeed, criticize it for the very mediocrity of its decisions. It does do this, and we do well to criticize, but I now see that this performance is undertaken in terms of conscious and intellectual decisions which belong to System 5 activity. But System 5 is preconditioned by System 4, and in particular, the reticular structure which settles the behavioral mode. People are near to the true point when they talk about states of morale. You cannot expect, one instinctively feels, aggressive commanding action by a firm threatened by takeover, beset by strikes, and otherwise in a state of near despair. But the concept of behavioral modes, as revealed by the model, is richer than this. We are not, after all, talking about emotional states, but about survival patterns created by algodonic controls. All right, so any thoughts about this section? Perhaps uh, go further, get some more details. All right, let's go. Um, the first three modes in which a company may be trapped to the exclusion of other modes seem clear enough. The first is the mode of sustained activity. It is the normal state of affairs in very large organizations, simply because their filtering systems are unable to distinguish other modes, and it is relatively rare in smaller companies for whom the recognized failure to advance constitutes regression. 
That remark gives us the clue to the next two modes, growth and retrenchment. These three behavioral modes exist on the same scale, so there is no difficulty in realizing their exclusivity. But I will suggest that the next easily recognizable, excuse me, <coughs> easily recognizable mode of behavior is the crisis mode. This might readily derive from either of the last two, uh, so uh, growth and retrenchment, and might well appear to be simultaneous with either of them. The reticular formation teaches us otherwise, and I, for one, respect its advice. For the crisis mode is certainly dominant when it occurs, so much so that everyone tends to forget which of the three scalar modes was operating before crisis supervened. Some firms, even large ones, exist habitually in the crisis mode, so that either growth or retrenchment considered as a basic strategy becomes a behavioral accident. That is to say that crisis as dominant may lead either to a panic retrenchment, where many activities are closed down in an effort to reduce costs in the short term, or it may result in acquisitions and mergers. The arbitrariness of this accompanying state has something to tell us. It is that the dominant emotion which accompanies the crisis mode is quite simply a feeling that we must get out of it. Any route in any direction seems acceptable as long as the crisis mode is supplanted. This is the heyday of irrational, not irrational, management. Now, obviously, crisis is a dangerous state to a survival-seeking organism, and this doubtless accounts for the irrationality of the outcome. At any rate, this theory of the exclusivity of behavioral modes offers the only explanation of which I am aware for the unpredictability of the way the cat will jump in these circumstances. It should also be noted that it is characteristic of the crisis mode that attempts to escape from this way of life characteristically involve re-entry rather than escape. Most of the things one tries to do by way of escape drive one back into crisis. So there is a positive feedback mechanism. The desire to escape becomes ever stronger as the attempts to escape increasingly fail. So uh, I think we are all familiar with this variety, uh, sorry, this uh, mode, uh, seeing as we have been in this mode for <laughs> a good long time now and seen uh, the characteristic re-entry and uh, uh, increasingly acute sense of crisis. Uh, so, yeah, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Shane. Yeah, I love that. This this is great, right? And especially the bit with the feedback, right? That like, um, it's it's you just kind of you get acclimated to a certain way of being, and I mean even on a personal level, right? Like mental health crisis and so on. At a certain point, it becomes just a way of living, and that it's it's the thing you become acclimated to, and the same happens for groups and other kinds of systems. Um, that even, especially for the crisis mode, where the the crisis, the emotion is we must get out of this. But the all of the activity then kind of leads back in a feedback cycle to the same panic and the same crisis. I also absolutely love the notion of like um, 
you know, if you compare, like, there's this, like, primary mode and then these, like, accidental secondary modes, you might have growth along with the crisis or, or shrinkage along with the crisis. And it's like, yeah, you have panic retrenchment, but also panic growth, <laughs> right? That, like, the, 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 the organization is panicked, in a panicked state, buying up other firms, but it's not really growth, it's still panic, because um, that's the dominant, the dominant rationale for what's going on. It's like stress eating. Yeah, right? totally. Absolutely, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. If this, this, this is good. It, um, it scans uh, for me at least. Yeah, uh, definitely. And uh, we do see, you know, um, I feel like the 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 moment of sort of uh, rallying around Biden as the one way out of this problem that we're in uh, politically right now uh is is it definitely seems to me to follow this pattern of uh you know <laughs> anything to get me out of yeah. this situation i think right one of the so the, the other way of doing that right so that's that's the thing of it's, it's returning and it's just doing more of the same and right like the but then the sort of obvious statement then is that more of the problem can't really be a solution and i think i think uh, somebody somebody i worked with before i think they were kind of was one of the senior engineers at a couple of companies back had a great way of kind of phrasing this that like when you find yourself in the hole in a hole the first thing you have to do is stop digging mm -hmm. you absolutely yeah. must stop doing the bad thing you you have to do that as a prerequisite for ever being able to get out of the hole but and the, the reason he had to say that was because almost everyone around us was panic digging and like, oh, well, none of this shit worked. Clearly doing more of it is going to be a solution, or it'll at least keep us busy. Um, so yeah, when, when we're in a hole, we have to stop digging. Right. Uh, okay, so let's go to Mark and then Matt. Oh, I think uh, both carried up too. But um, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join in at the right time last week. But uh, as much as this mode discussion is interesting... Uh, when I was rereading it, I'm, uh, just got me back to what, what does this have to do with system five again? <laughs> right. It's like, I mean, I think it's good for the overall organization, but, uh, as so often with beer, it's like the kind of the articulation of, of these concepts into the structure, like kind of raises, it raises questions <laughs> basically. So, uh, he's good at sneaking stuff at that, which is why it's so good to do all this close reading we're doing because, uh, anyway, so that was just kind of more of an overall point on the chapter, but I just wanted to throw that in since we switched to this part. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, it's like, well, what does this have to do with system five? And I think it gets back to that point, which is that system five is kind of something that is endemic to the entire firm. It's not mm -hmm. really the board sitting up at the top. Um, so these, these uh, modes or these tones that the whole organism engages in this like general state of morale is actually part of system five because it's kind of a holistic system. Uh, system four is the one that kind of would deliberate over mode switching, 
Mm-hmm. But System 5 is the system that actually kind of, like, experiences and propagates and operates through these modalities. Um, I, I think that's kind of what Beer is trying to say here. I think so. I, 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 but I think it's also that, like, System 5 is charged with selecting policy and, like, selecting general directions. And it, it kind of should be responsible for some of this. Like, because you kind of want some control over your own emotional states, right? Like, you want, you want the ability to stop yourself from panicking and to start doing something else instead, which is very like a kind of selection of policy. Um, in the absence of that, you're just going to get the neural thrashing of the organism just going into wild reaction and arbitrarily switching modes. So I, I think he's kind of indicating that it's, it, it should, in a, in a well-run organ, uh, in a well-run society like this, this sort of mode switching should be conscious just to whatever degree it can be. Um, but also it is pervasive anyway. Like, this is always going to be a pervasive, as, as Kyle said, it's always going to be a per- pervasive morale thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the point I'm, I'm uh, taking that from is the bottom of page 233, where Beer says, um, <clears throat> uh, but System 5 is, so he says, but I now see that this performance is undertaken in terms of conscious and intellectual decisions which belong to System 5 activity. But System 5 is preconditioned by System 4, and in particular, the reticular structure which settles the behavioral mode. Yeah, you're quite um, right there. So the System so, 5 selection policy is going to happen in the context of a, a mood as well. Right. That like yeah, when, that's right. when you're deliberating over what to do next as a policy, the mood is going to be conditioned in general by this 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 general yes. morale. Okay. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's because System Five like has an intelligence, but it's very distributed, and it's like you know. That kind of intelligence is sort of very different from, like, deliberative intelligence in the way that we think about it typically, even though there is a kind of deliberation that goes on. It's just, like, it's it's more like, uh, what, what could I say, the, the quality of the organization as a whole that would sort of de- 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 determine its capacity to arrive at the right mode uh more so than it would be you know uh the decision makers um deliberating on the issue and choosing a plan because <clears throat> the decision makers in the case of morale is kind of everyone it's like the question of like whether a unit is going to break or not under attack mm-hmm. uh um, <clears throat> so I, I think that's kind of the locus of activity that we're talking about here. I'm not a hundred percent sure that's the case because as you said, uh, Mark beer is not very clear about this, but that's what I am inferring from the chapter. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Matt, go ahead. And then, uh, we'll go to boast. 
Yeah, um, uh, what, what, what's it? Some, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the way I understood it was that yeah, like 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 like, like system, system five uh, is 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 modal and and uh, uh, you know kind of like system three, which I guess is part of why you know system five can collapse into system three, where like instead of having you know growth and uh, um, you know uh, uh, and and panic and uh, uh, and and the other ones, you know, and, and more nuance, like you know, you just wind up having the um, excitation versus inhibition in uh, uh, in system three. Like, like it's literally just you know like a, a flight or fight or, or a rest and digest instead of having like this whole you know like like range of options. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, I also thought of uh, um, uh, uh, Carl Schmidt and uh, like how he thought like um, uh, states of exception were like you know that's what governance was, <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the, and like like in general like I think um you know, like a, a, a fascist and kind of reactionary thought kind of like they really like the bonuses that you get from panic mode. Like, like they think like that's just what, you know, and then uh, I think on a cynical level uh, on one side, you know, because they want to keep other organizations, other potential lasts, I guess, you know, in, in a state of panic where like they can't really like react, you know, uh, you know, what, 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 what it, what it called, you know, what, what, like, you know, a breakdown of your OODA loop. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, I think it also just that, you know, it, it values like, you know, a kind of, uh, uh, even like, a, um, uh, you know, it, like authentically values, you know, like what you get from panic mode. Well, like, I think that's just what real, like authentic humanity is. Yeah. It reminds me of the Mao quote, everything under heaven is an utter chaos. The situation is excellent. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of another thinker who was, uh, appreciative of the panic state. Um, uh, Boast, go ahead. So I've gotten into mind now, like we keep, uh, the way that we keep talking about System 5, I can't stop thinking about them as the vibes managers. Like, are the vibes good? Are the vibes bad? Do we need to up the vibes? Um, but also, Jeremy totally beat me to the punch on uh, the comparison of like this whole passage to Shock Doctrine. And um, especially how Naomi Klein just like uh, did that analysis of um, like Louisiana and how immediately afterwards we saw all this growth, but growth that uh, was completely disparate from the identity of the actual place that, you know, existed prior to the hurricane. Um, so I think that like in light of that, it's interesting to look on this and um, reflect on our discussions about identity um, in last week and like how system five is sometimes the mitigators of identity. And, um, like when he made uh, the passage where like the growth, um, or the, uh, the growth crisis mode sometimes results in mergers and acquisitions, wherein like we see like growth, but the identity of the company kind of gets perturbed in that way because it's, uh, it's growing in a way that might be, uh, no longer connected to these like lower levels or, uh, completely disrespectful of those lower levels in the shock doctrine, uh, comparison. Right. Yeah, it's that's very interesting. And obviously the shock doctrine is very core to uh neoliberal austerity thinking. Um and, and their sort of theories of growth. Um all right. Well, uh let's let's carry on a little bit. Um so we go to uh I think we're on a fifth characteristic mode. Is the right one? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, a fifth characteristic mode, different from the three scalar modes and the crisis mode, seems recognizable. It is the moribund, a behavioral state which looks like sustained activity, but with what? Excuse me, but which is in fact a steady decline towards death. So basically, the Brezhnev era, right, is is the moribund uh, moribund mode. Uh, many firms experience this mode with equanimity. Uh, they consider themselves to be in an epoch of sustained activity, which appeals to the intellectual via media strategy maker. The facts are, however, that all the markets are quietly declining. The impact of such facts can be offset by claiming to recognize the decline as a function of temporary adverse conditions. These may indeed be offset by various devices, such as small price increases that are claimed to be the inevitable outcome of rising costs. The firm which is self-engrossed, which does not think in terms of the higher management, may continue this self-deception for a very long time. The well-nigh inevitable outcome for such a firm is the receipt of a takeover bid. For other firms, competitors, suppliers, consumers, have no motive for self-deception where the affairs of our firm are concerned. That is why they see the truth sooner than we do and move in. So, enter Reagan, right? Um, the next mode, which I seem to recognize, has few, if any, parallels in the animal kingdom, apart from man himself. It is a mode of self-destruction, the so-called death wish. This presumably derives from a sense of inadequacy and may lead to a pathologically masochistic frame of mind, or, in the case of the firm, climate of opinion. I have known several firms reduced to uh, inanition, yes, inanition as a result of a failure to metabolize creative talent already available within the organization. Such a firm may exist for a long time in the crisis mode, and imperceptibly but definitely switch into the self-destructive mode as its sense of inadequacy overwhelms it. Uh, so here we can think about the post-Soviet left, uh, right, as, as the self-destructive mode. Um, there is certainly positive feedback available to this transition, too, in that the market quickly recognizes such symptoms. By its reactions, formal and informal, and by the consequences for the share value, the firm's masochistic tendencies may soon be reinforced. The typical outlook here is a reverse takeover. But let us remember that the behavioral mode is exclusive of other modes. While this is happening, there may be appearances of, for example, uh, growth-dominant behavior. They are illusory. A firm in this mode may exhibit crisis behavior and also declare itself to be a growth concern. Learn from the model. It is the dysfunction of the adaptive mechanism which is at fault, and the firm is actually in the retrenchment mode. The appearance of crisis is due to the lack of policy, even about retrenchment, which generates panic among the bulk of the employees who do not understand what is going on. The illusory appearance of a growth mode is due to the refusal of senior management to believe they cannot cope with the situation, so that they declare unrealizable targets in which they may in all honesty believe. Despite these confusing appearances, 
the real mode of behavior is not survival worthy. It is decline. The firm is like an animal intent upon fleeing, which nevertheless urinates and defecates irrelevantly at the same time. Uh, we'll just do the sixth mode and then uh, have a little discussion. So the sixth mode seems to be one of unfeigned aggression. It is distinguished from the growth mode by the fact that there is no objective basis for growth. In nature, the aggressive mode, which is not based on discernible needs and opportunities, is usually disastrous. <clears throat> this is not so in business, for reasons we shall uncover in a moment. Whether in nature or in commerce, aggression is read by others as significantly based in the first instance. Viable systems are not supposed to become aggressive without cause, or, more particularly, without soundly based expectations of success. In both cases, aggression is in the long run met by calling the bluff. This happens left less often in business than in nature, because businesses are supposed to be run by managements of high judgment. This fact loads the dice in favor of the pathological aggressor. Moreover, even though his bluff be called, he may often escape behind a high-variety smokescreen, which effectively disguises the bald truth. In getting out, he may make a lot of money, which fact, uh, by positive feedback, increases rather than diminishes his ch chances uh, next time round. So this is the classic failing upward uh, that, that CEOs do. Um, these considerations lay bare another truth. The time lags in the managerial context are too long. The firm remains locked in one mode because it believes that it cannot readily change course, and therefore it disregards its opportunities of doing so. Perhaps this is partially due to systems of annual budgeting. In nature, the viable system does not make this mistake. It is conditioned by evolution to be quick on the draw, where a change of mode is concerned. Introspection will reveal how little inertia has the reticular formation. In management, the inertia is very high. When it comes to government, the inertia is so high as almost to deny the mechanisms for adaptation enjoyed as of right by any viable system. The reason for this in large-scale enterprise is the belief of all concerned in inertia itself. Opportunism is a dirty word. It betokens irresponsible action. The viable system in nature seizes its opportunities so that a man making love will switch to a fleeing mode when he hears the husband's footsteps on the stairs, but may equally stop fleeing if the opportunity to make love suddenly presents itself again. Companies and nations have failed in this rapid reticular switching and, uh, I repeat, excuse themselves with cliche-ridden talk about the responsible conduct of affairs. So we return to a long-standing issue in this book. Artificially contrived viable systems do not pay sufficient attention <coughs> to the immediacy of response, nor in general to the instabilities, or worse, the rock-hard overstabilities engendered by differential time lags inside the informational circuit. All right, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So in the... Uh, the paragraph about growth being illusory, 
I wrote the first time I, I've read, I'm on my third reading, but the first time I read this book, I wrote in the margin hyper normalization. It really seems like this is like the phenomenon Adam Curtis talked about with hyper normalization of everyone pretending that everything's going great when it absolutely is not, but having it be a taboo to be honest about what's happening. And then the aggression mode I wrote in the margin. Trump as businessman, because all of his schemes are bullshit, and the only thing that ties them together is feigned aggression. You know, and because he keeps failing upward, people just assume he's a great businessman. So, yeah, yeah I'm, those two I'm, concepts, you know, are are what I wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. That's. Uh... When we were doing the 18th premiere uh, reading series with uh, from Alpha to Omega, we were talking about sort of the comparisons between Louis Bonaparte and Trump. And one thing that sort of comes up is that Louis Bonaparte was a lot better at retreating when the situation demanded it, uh, whereas Trump really just has the mode of aggression and hoping that no one's going to call his bluff. Um Okay, uh, Jeremy, I think you need to mute yourself. Your typing sure. is coming on the line. Uh, so let's go to Jake and then Shane. Yeah, I really like this sort of like section of this chapter because it kind of really like crystallizes for me a bit more of like what System 5 is supposed to do or what it's supposed to concern itself with. Like these ideas of, you know, sort of categorizing the whole action of the system as you know, in one of these modes, uh, and then, like, be, because System 5 is so concerned with these these sort of self-conscious uh, examinations of its activity, rather than sort of in the, like, in the practical, like, you know, is so-and-so being done or whatever, like, that would be concerned with the lower system, or that the lower systems would be concerned with. But then it's when it gets to this point where, like, you know, where you ask yourself, what am I doing? You know, what am I really doing here? And that's what system five is. It's like, it's asking the system, like, what are we really doing here? What is this really doing? What, to what end is this doing? And what are the motivations behind it? And I think that the description of like, especially that like last one, that like, um, the, the unfeigned aggression of like, it's so common in, you know, as like someone pointed out, yeah, as both said, like the, the financialization and, all these other like things that are so prevalent in like capitalism, especially today, because all these people are like, and with Trump and stuff, like these people that are able to fail upwards because of family money and status, you know, that just like prevents that insulates them from any like negative consequences of their actions. And then it just, it's just like reinforcing that this is the way to do things. This is how you get ahead in life, you know, which is like one of the huge problems with capitalism of like teaching, you know, like rewarding that shitty behavior. But the idea of like the system five being there to correct this kind of thing, to basically prevent that sort of thing from happening. I mean, obviously like all the other systems are set up in such a way that it's like not supposed to rely on like a single ruler and, you know, like one like CEO kind of thing. So that hopefully wouldn't get to this point. But then if, if it does get to this point, you know, if all these people are bought into this sort of cult of, uh, like ideology that is pointing towards this or like personality, whenever like, you know, thinking that, well, we just have to do something and therefore we'll continue to do this thing. It's like, 
sometimes you got to stop and like step back and like actually examine what direction you're going, why you're doing it. And like, whether it's actually getting you towards the goal is something that, you know, like, and I really like, this is, I, I keep going back to the thing Jeremy said a few sessions ago about the lack of there being like there being a lack of a proletarian system five. Like we don't, there is no way of like self, like of looking at the activity of the whole proletarian class, you know, and, and maybe there's no way of, there will be no way of looking at the whole class, but at least like, you know, some supermajority or whatever. But like the fact that we don't have that means we're just unable to correct these things that we're inheriting from capitalism and people like are so they're so caught up in the idea of like well we have to do something we're in this crisis mode we have to get out that they don't take the time to properly examine what they're doing and why they're doing it and whether it's actually going to lead to the thing that they're purporting to like support you know or like like communism or socialism whatever are you actually is what you're doing actually leading to that or are you just stuck in this mode of like well this is how it was done before or well like we have to do something so let's not do it let's not let's not wait around and deliberate about the best way of doing this thing we just have to go and then and especially because all these like left uh organizations are like inherited these old models of organization where it, it, it does give like disproportionate power to some people at the top it means that those people who are in that mode of like maybe not unfeigned aggression, but they're in some, the like moribund or, you know, some of the other ones, like where there's no, because then, because there's no organ for the self-reflection, you know, maybe there's like conventions that don't really allow for this kind of system five level change. It's just, they keep, keep perpetuating and it doesn't actually get anywhere. So I think that's been my like, like this is the goal. Now I have a I have a better goal. I think, which is to to build this system five, this proletarian system five. Right. So you know, in Beer's terms, when we talk about the idea of the proletariat becoming a class for itself, we're essentially saying the proletariat needs a system five, because the system five is about identity. Right. Be, becoming a class for itself is about acquiring an identity, a self-conscious identity, which is a system five. Um, <clears throat> uh, OK, so let's go to Shane, then Rudy uh, and then Bose. Sure. Um, just a very quick sort of observation. I think the, the moribund or steady decline mode kind of reminded me of um, the sort of long collapse of the liberal center in politics, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. Like, I mean, with the U.S., you have the general rot of the Democratic Party. Um, in the U.K., we've had something fairly similar where even in the recent hurricane of general elections that have all come back to back, the center, the sort of Blairites, the kind of Lib Dems, the people that would split from labor, the Blairite bits that would split from labor to form, like, the change whatever org, and they were astonished that people weren't beating a path to their door, that people weren't starving for this new, fresh third way or whatever. They didn't realize they were in this moribund, decaying state. They had this illusion of, of, of being in a state of sustained activity. Um, and it was really interesting during that period to see the gears turn in their heads, like starting to realize that they'd completely lost touch with everything and they'd actually, they'd, they'd been, their whole base had been rotting out from under them. 
and they found themselves lost in the wilderness as like the state of play in bourgeois society just moved on from the 90s, you know, and their their general pitch of like, oh, we're going to leave labor and we're going to do Blairism again just like fell flat completely. Um, so, yeah, that's another another example of one of these modes. Yeah, kind of, I think Jake said a lot of what I wanted to say. Uh, one of the things that made me think, uh, I've been thinking so much about, well, not only what Jeremy said about System 5, but also that when uh, when Beer tells Allende, you are System 5, and Allende says, no, it's uh, the people. And it's like, well, it really isn't the people. It's not true that it's the people. It's also not true that it's Allende, right? And how do you square that? And I'm just reminded of uh, Badiou's, uh, one of Badiou's, well, basically, he says that the Cultural Revolution in China marks the end of Leninism in a way because it was never able to solve the dichotomy between party and people. And how do you see it there? That's a pure expression of what is System 5. And like Jake said, I mean, if you do that project, let me know because I want to know about it. Right. Uh, yeah, so... I, I do think that that ambiguity is there because, um, you know, Beer sort of talks about System 5 being like a general state of morale. Um, but he also talks in this particular section about, say, the, the C-suite being uh, System 5 and being a bunch of uh, bluffers or, you know, uh, these, these kind of... Uh, business school types that just fail upwards. So I really do think it, it kind of comes back to that, that classic um, problem of, you know, the king is the nation, but the king is also not the nation, right? Like the king is also an individual. Uh, that, that sort of idea of polity that is, has a very, very, very long history, um, I think is really what is ambiguous here and what we're, we're grappling with. Um, Boast, go ahead. Uh, so I'll try to keep it kind of short, um, mostly because it's a wish that I had that he actually really would have gone into more detail in the um, in his part about like the 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 death drive or uh, the self destructive mode. Because I think like something that I try to keep in mind is that above System Five, there's eventually at some point another System Five, and below System Five, at some point there's another System Five. So if we were to, I think he mentioned that there are a few parallels in the animal kingdom, but that, like it's interesting to look at cell apoptosis and its role in actually preserving the identity and the functionality of the organism. Yes, the system of the cell completely collapses, but it does so to the advantage of a system five further up the ladder. And I think that uh, that could have been explored in a really interesting way by seeing that death drive as actually really in line with as opposed to detached from the, the reality that the system's encountering. Yeah, there is a mention uh, in an earlier section of the book about uh, the organism deciding to terminate one of its system ones, which would have its own system five, right? Um, that, is a, uh, that is a functional decision that could be come to. Uh, and, you know... 
like, for example, in the decision uh, to no longer uh, service the debts of Yugoslavia and to basically torpedo the country, uh, that maybe is the kind of decision that we're talking about here. Like when the, when the U.S. decided to to financially torpedo Yugoslavia, like they were basically deciding to eliminate that system one uh, in their capacity as managers of the global financial system. Um, there are examples we could think about uh, in a kind of political sense as opposed to just uh, within a firm. Uh, but it's a very good point. Uh, you know, how does the identity of the organism as system five interact with a higher level? Uh, beer here is specifically kind of interested in the identity of system five and the exception that system five is to that kind of tree or hierarchy of, of, of recursive systems. Uh, but it is an interesting question. <clears throat> um okay so let's let's keep going um so uh he says uh there may be other behavioral modes than these six which i have been unable to isolate but beware we incorrectly identify modes if they are not mutually exclusive except by accident Many of the apparently more complicated behaviors which companies exhibit seem fundamentally to belong to one or the other of these basic six. The whole of this matter requires further research. In the meantime, let us note well the existence and large-scale efficacy of this variety-reducing technique of immense potency. The other trouble is that we have so far failed to institutionalize so important a mechanism. It usually seems to operate without anyone at all becoming aware of the fact, still less of the mechanism involved. What might this mechanism be, and what further research might be productive? Neurocybernetically speaking, we have the model of the reticular formation of the brainstem already mentioned, which fortunately tends, uh, excuse me, which fortunately lends itself to mathematical description. See references under A4. <laughs> Managerially speaking, we have as a start the observations discussed in the last few pages, which have been greatly reinforced by experience since I first recorded them. See especially part four of this edition, which is like the stuff about his time in Chile. At the time of the publication of the first edition, I knew of no mathematical approach which offered any prospect of handling the sudden switches in behavioral modes that I was describing. In fact, René Tom's uh, seminal work, Stabilité Structurelle et Morphogenèse, uh, appeared in that same year and gave rise to a whole new area of mathematical analysis now known as catastrophe theory. What is catastrophic is the sudden switch of mode. That is, the catastrophe is not necessarily disastrous as in the ordinary English usage. The, mathemat the mathematics, which remain a highly contentious topic among mathematicians, fold an infinitely differentiable plane surface in a three-dimensional space. 
The result is that changes do not necessarily occur gradually, as they must, however swiftly, in a plane space. Changes may occur instantaneously because a trajectory simply falls off one fold to reappear on the next fold. Putting all these notions together, it should be possible to devise a powerful and testable, and moreover, a predictive theory about corporate behavioral modalities. A start was made, see joint paper with John Casty cited in the references of D of the appendix, uh, but there has not been time to pursue it. The main difficulty is to propose an acceptable metric for any empirical verification of the theory. The next remark, which ought to be made about the reticular formation, that algodonic controller, is that it is indeed a trans-system. Essentially, it connects System 3 with System 4, but in so doing, it creates a new dimension of decision geared to survival. There was emphasis earlier on the arbitrariness of all the organizational divisions, and on the need to reconnect across any boundaries which were created. We have found in System 3 the immediate response mechanism for dealing with internal and current affairs. It has been contrasted with System 4, dealing with external and future affairs. That distinction looked biologically valid. The very fact that this distinction is so profound in terms of survival capability, as compared with the arbitrary distinctions which managers have invented to distinguish between production, sales, finance, and the rest, leads to a very special risk of polarization in the firm's affairs. So it is in the brain also, where a failure to bridge this mighty gap would lead to instant death. Once again, it is the reticular formation, the algodonic controller, which guarantees survival. We saw in Chapter 10 that the reticular formation spans the two structures of 3 and 4 morphologically, so it must be in the managerial context too or so it must be in the managerial context too. The behavioral mode of the organism is fixed across 3 and 4. If it were not so, either one or the other would be ill-served, leading to the death of the organism. As it is, and the mode having been fixed, System 5 can act, albeit in a most superior capacity, only within the context of this conclusion. Try introspection once again. If you know yourself to be in a crisis mode, which you may be wholly unable to analyze, one thing is certain, you will not sit down to play a game of chess. There are other things to do. Moreover, if you attempt to analyze the mode of behavior which is said in this way, you may expect to become distraught once the redundant potential commanders have operated. The senior controllers inevitably work within the framework set by their juniors. Ultimately, neither the brain nor the firm is an analyzer, but a recognizer. That is why speed of recognition is so important, while analytical, or excuse me, while analytic power is relatively unimportant. We must recognize and then react. Otherwise, analysis may consume too many precious weeks, and a viable response to a threat will be, as the lawyers say, out of time. A great deal of serious analytical work in management is wasted for this reason. It becomes an intellectual game that is played concomitantly with, but not affecting, the progress of real events. The model as we now see it exists to be used. It has taken nearly 30 years to develop to this form. 
the first 20 mainly in the context of the firm. But it is not some kind of straitjacket. Think of it instead as a well-structured language for discussing viable systems. In the years since this book received its title, which could hardly be changed without impropriety, the model has been applied to all kinds of organization, and not only to firms, from a learned society to a university faculty, from schools to hospitals, from one branch of social service to another, from government agency to department of state, from province to federation, and eventually, as will be seen in part four, in a multiple application to the socio-industrial economy of a whole nation. The diagnostic power of the tool has proven worthy. Hence, a final reminder of the fundamental cybernetic thesis may well be in order. If there are natural laws governing viable systems, then all viable systems will be found to obey them. I end with this reminder for a particular reason. A body of distinguished opinion in the circles of management science has developed a classification of large systems which appears to be disastrously unhelpful. It says that some systems exist in which the whole is there to serve the parts, while others exist in which the parts are there to serve the whole. These are sometimes referred to as heterogeneous and homogeneous systems, respectively. Anyone who has mastered the nature of the cybernetic model offered here will understand why I regard this classification as meaningless. It is analogous to the canal that firms are either decentralized or centralized. We could not make physiological sense of that old contention. I do not think we could make either physiological or ecological sense of the new one. The viable system is a system that survives. It coheres. It is integral. It is homeostatically balanced both internally and externally, but it has nonetheless mechanisms and opportunities to grow and to learn, to evolve and adapt, to become more and more potent in its environment. In all of this, the viable system may succeed since, excuse me, may succeed sensationally, spectacularly fail, or it may muddle along. The amoeba succeeded. The dinosaur failed. The coelacanth muddles along. You and I have our own problems of survival. As to the firm, as to government, as to society, as to the future of mankind, all viable systems we shall see. Structural change is so potent a business and so traumatic to undergo that people prefer to pretend they cannot see what their own eyes insistently report rather than commit themselves to the reshaping which is necessary. Even in the cases quoted above as applications of this work, my guess would be that organizations cannot face up to more than a quarter of the reshaping that their long-term viability demands. This is, of course, the reason why so many enterprises are in a state of continuous, never mind continual, reorganization. People pretend that the great upheaval is almost complete. It never is, and the viable system becomes increasingly unstable as a result. This, in turn, makes every enterprise vulnerable to attack. When the management or the government has fallen, when its policies are in disarray and its people in despair, we can pretend no longer. In another era of manifest instability, the 1930s, Louis, uh, Louis McNeese noticed the same pretense and its consequences. The glass is falling hour by hour. The glass will fall forever. But if you break the bloody glass, 
you won't hold up the weather. All right. So uh, let's go to Shane. Um, it's pronounced coelacanth. It's coelacanth. <laughs> thank it's, you. It's an ex- it's a it's a it's a kind of fish that was believed to be extinct, but they found one or two of them hanging around. Um, they're kind of like ugly, oh, nice skull fish. They have really bony heads. Um, they were believed to be extinct, but anyway. Um, apparently, yeah, the coelacanth bundles along. But um, <laughs> the way this thing, this thing finishes is fucking amazing, right? Um, and. This emphasis on like the the need for massive change and like continuous rejuvenation and re- reorganization, like proper sort of like putting yourself really on the right footing to survive, um, and the, the the trauma of that and the the kind of natural unwillingness to actually face the fact, right? Um, and we see that fucking everywhere. We see it. We we especially see it on in the sort of uh, burnt out wreckage of the left, right? This kind of like kind of unwillingness to let go of the ashes and um, entertain the possibility that maybe just doing Bolshevism again is fucking horseshit. Um, maybe maybe we have to restructure our thought. We have to restructure a lot about ourselves. And that really genuinely is traumatic, you know? Um, it's it's very hard stuff, uh, but it's extremely necessary. Uh, so I kind of like that he, he finishes on this note, which is somewhat inspirational, but does have this note, this kind of sort of minor key to it that there's, um, there, there are, uh, I mean, even like at the, at the level of like the required revolutionary transformation of modern society so as to make it actually sustainable in the face of ecological collapse, that's going to be a hell of a fucking reconfiguration and it'll be, it'll be traumatic even if not, a, even if, even if somehow not a single drop of blood is spilled, it'll still be extremely painful um for pretty much everyone you know um i don't know i kind of like the emphasis here of like this this is traumatizing stuff but it absolutely has to happen and we have to we have to learn to reconfigure our thinking to make it not traumatizing for us um that change change shouldn't be traumatic Uh, we should be able to do this right well he you know makes this uh sort of generalization based on experience that, you know, any given organization isn't going to be able to uh, meet a quarter or more than a quarter of the challenges that it needs to face in order to remain viable into the future. Um, And given the situation we're in right now as a civilization, we need to do better than 25%. Uh which is quite intimidating, <laughs> to say the least. Um, uh, there was another part here uh, where he talks about um, the brain. Uh, the brain or the firm is an analyzer, but a recognizer. Uh, the speed of recognition is more important than analytic power. Uh, that again reminded me a lot of Boyd. Right. Um, that, that was just like, oh, yeah, uh, right. Um, that's that's a good point. Um, you do see that in kind of like military history quite a lot where you can have these brilliant commanders who plan every little thing and are analytically very competent, but they actually fail in the field because their ability to make decisions is a. Uh, is really poor uh, in, in terms of speed. Uh, um, you know, 
for example, like George Washington was just a kind of average commander because he liked to overcomplicate his plans too much and come up with the perfect solution as to or as to uh, sorry as comp- compared with uh, the right solution in the moment. Um, okay, Jake, uh, and then Boast. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, Shane. Like, it's a big job. Someone has to do it if we are to survive, and we should get on that. Like, let's do it. Um, and, and also, you know, I think, I think his, uh, his little aside, uh, that last sentence of the paragraph on the top of 238 of, like, the, Senior control is inevitably work within the framework set by their juniors. You know, as I think, like, kind of tie, ties this all back to the, the sort of connect, interconnectedness of the VSM. And, you know, I, I just, I just, uh, thought and started reading decision and control. And he starts that off by talking about the ways that, like, scientists are, like, create the space for organizational discussion and, like, deliberation by, like, framing the facts. You know, and I think, and, and that's sort of what he's getting at here, where, like, the senior management won't know what's going on if they aren't, if it's not reported to them. Cause they're, frankly, they're not doing the work, you know, I mean, like, and he, and so, you know, what, what remains is like to be able to do that in a way that like actually allows the junior management to like, and it's just to, I guess, tie it to like sort of the product of building a new kind of society is like, we need a system a society that like allows those junior man junior managers, you know, the, the people like doing the work or directly managing the people doing the work to like make those decisions. Uh, because if we sort of let it filter up in an in inefficient way, which like certainly is happening now, then it's just like, it leads to so much confusion. Um, and so I think figuring that out is the key to getting this to actually like getting us to the point where we're actually taking on these, these, uh, the demands of the time and um and yeah like it's it's a it's a tough proposition to reshape like the work like reshape the whole structure of it, of it all but you know we can't just sort of tinker around at the edges which is i think is his point where you know he says the reason why so many enterprises are in a state of continuous and my continual organization reorganization like they're constantly reorganizing, but not in, not even necessarily in a way that takes into account the last reorganization. You know, it's just like, it just keeps happening, but it doesn't necessarily have a through line. It just keeps happening too, because we're in this state of crisis and no one seems to have an idea of how to, how to get out of it. Or rather, no one seems to, uh, think to take the time to consider how to actually get out of it, you know? Um, and so that's why, that's why I've, I've really enjoyed this, this reading the book and reading Peter in general is because like he is the first person that I've read that actually does seem to be taking that seriously. And in a, in the modern context, I mean, people were all always have been, you know, communists have always been talking about it, but we actually have the technological means to do it, you know, now, I mean, various communists were always talking about it, I should say, uh, to different extents, but, um, you know, we have the technological means to do it in a way that's like actually possible now, I think. So mm-hmm. let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, he says this other point that is quite important. Uh, people pretend that the great upheaval is almost complete. 
right? It it never is, and the viable system becomes increasingly unstable as a result. So, like, I think that that is a sign of pathology that the great upheaval is is never complete because. You know, he's suggesting that there can be these catastrophic switches between modes, and the crisis mode isn't actually permanent, in theory at least, or even observable in organisms, right? Uh, We're not continually in crisis. And um, there can be reactions to the situation or to the environment that are actually different than just crisis. Um, so I don't think this is like a sort of advice like, oh, you know, like you think uh, that the great upheaval is almost complete, but the great upheaval is never complete, man. Like, that's just life. Like, I don't think that's what Beer's saying. I think Beer's saying that in a dysfunctional organization, the great upheaval is never complete until the organization is dead, right? Uh, or subsumed into something else. Uh, because we can actually switch from one mode to another mode. And these modes are distinct. They're not just gradations uh, because the change is catastrophic. So there is like an actual difference between a crisis and, you know, form of growth. Um, uh, okay, boast. Go ahead. I mean, I just want to say that I like how he kind of rounds it out here, but I also like how the, the line, uh, the amoeba succeeded, the dinosaur failed, the coelacanth, the coelacanth muddles along. Um, it's just another way that uh, Beer's kind of dealing with the discreteness of what the system is. And it's like, okay, well, you're viable at this scale. Because, uh, I mean, what are we going to say that the, the most viable system in the world is a tardigrade that can just kind of survive in all of these situations? But, like, we don't really consider, like, uh, it's viable because it's surviving through time, but it's not a really like engageable system. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, continuing to exist by kind of just, uh, <laughs> surviving everything. It's not actually engaging with the world so much as just, uh, constantly dealing with that low grade crisis that just permeates all time. Um, but yeah, just kind of wanted to say that I like how it rounded it out. Um, and how sometimes it's, uh, kind of how Shane mentioned it's a, it's a traumatic crisis of, uh, lacking imagination to say, like, let's just blow up the structure and reform. Because that's no one wants that. Like it's it's a it's a crisis is tragedy to smaller scales. Um, so yeah, it's like how do we overcome that uh, that that traumatic impulse saying don't imagine something different. Right. Indeed. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think with crisis stuff, we can definitely take hints from. Um our understanding of human psychology that like it is in 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 general yes it is possible for the organism to not be in crisis but it is unfortunately quite common for people to get essentially permanently stuck in or at least like stuck for decades in a crisis mode and you get that kind of like depressive realism sets in where the, the you become so acclimated to the, the the panic that it doesn't seem as if anything else could possibly be real which would, you know, that would be like your kind of capitalist realism or whatever, or the kind of like uh, disaster fatalism of um, some sort of leftists and so on, right? But like, but as as Kyle said, like it's 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 not a he's not saying that oh you know 
it is foolish to think that the crisis will ever be over, like crisis is eternal somehow. No, it, it is possible to be out of the crisis, but you would have to structurally change in such a way that you could even see the exit and, and, and then get to the exit. Um, but in, if you take as a given that you are in a crisis-riddled, dysfunctional system, then the exit will never be apparent. Um, which is to say that, like, it's, it's not impossible to leave, but it is also very possible to be practically trapped. Um, and so, but I, it, like, where are we with this socialist shit? We're probably in this kind of, like, depressive realist sort of mode of thinking that we're, we're fucked forever, right? Which expresses itself in different ways. In, in some ways, it expo- expresses itself in that kind of, Nick Land thing of like wanting the destruction, like tricking yourself into thinking that that's cool, um, or it's a kind of like eco collapse nihilism of like, well, you know, it's going to be fun to watch the world burn, or some variations on that. Um, and yeah, it's a challenge to really break those patterns and to 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 see the kind of to see the exits. They, they, they can actually be quite close once once well, we learn train ourselves to see. It, it it can also manifest in the form of of growth without purpose, right? That that kind of like uh, unfounded aggression. Like we just need to we just need to increase our base and then yeah. problem solve or to lash right? out, like that. You know, just do do yeah. like insurrectionary bullshit or whatever, and just sort of like lash out at whatever's nearest to you and pretend that that's revolution. Um, right. Yeah, or base building is just like, hey, we just have to swell. We just have to be like yeah. a fucking like one of those. Um, Lichen patches on a fucking lake, and, and it just keeps getting bigger until it takes over the whole lake. But it's not really a coherent thing, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just uh, 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 yeah, thinking, thinking about what, like, mode switching in terms of, like, you know, the 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 left as I've uh, experienced it over like the last two years. Like, uh, yeah, the, 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 there does seem like uh, in like kind of the older tech world, you know, um, uh, uh, that you know they've been kind of having uh, difficulty, you know, switching from a mode of just kind of like, uh, you know, just basically just keeping the, the keeping the fire burning um, uh, uh, into the mode of explosive growth that you know started in 2015. And now what, what, what I'm kind of worried about is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a D, D, DSA, you know, kind of coalesced, um, uh, uh, and, you know, and, 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 real, and, uh, there were things that made sense in, a, um, a period of explosive growth that, you know, like maybe, uh, aren't, uh, aren't, aren't really the, the way to go for, uh, something like a steady state. Like, you know, uh, like I think it really did make sense to engage in something that I guess some socialists would call like opportunism, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, upselling people who were into Bernie or AOC, you know, like uh, I'm sold. I did that. That's how I got on board. You know, Bernie got this on my radar. I took it seriously with uh, AOC winning. And, uh, uh, but you know, like, uh, 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 like, yeah, but that made sense for like a very specific stage where like you kind of needed these kind of organic catalysts. And now, you know, like, uh, uh, will, you know, will there, will, will, will it be possible to actually like a uh, shift mode into like a steady state and like consolidate those gains? Like, I don't know. So we'll see. Right. Uh, sort of getting back to the point about, um, you know, the continuous reorg or the, 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 the great upheaval being continuous. Um, it kind of reminds me of that, uh, Buddhist maxism, maxim that, uh, all existence is suffering. Uh, and, 
the more correct sort of translation of that phrase is supposedly more to the extent that like all existence is uncomfortable. It's like, it's never settled. Uh, but that doesn't really mean that all existence is just like anguish or crisis constantly. It's more of like the, it's more just like recognizing the necessity of viable systems than it is saying like, well, we're just, we should just all be doomers. Right. Uh, the, the only way, the only way to, uh, exist in this world is to try to get out of it. Um, I don't think that's, that's really what we need. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Much like a much like a physics object in Skyrim, that's like a basket just jumping around the room. It's never settled. Right? It's yeah. I mean, it's even basic cybernetics. You will be perturbed, and that's just fucking it. Like the the you are there, and the environment is there, and you will be perturbed. Um, you kind of better better learn to live with it. Um, maybe for for Matt's thing, like with the DSA stuff, um, it's probably worth reemphasizing Beer's point in the chapter here that. He's, he's drawing these distinctions between like the kind of true mode and these like accidental secondary modes. And it's, it's very possible to have like panic retrenchment, like panic shrinkage or panic growth. You know, the, um, like, so we, but like with the, the DSA thing, I think it's maybe because it's one of the only sort of things that's gone in our favor in any fucking way recently. It's like, oh, yay, growth, fucking amazing, right? But is, is it, is it panic eating or panic shitting or something like that? Is, is, is the true mode actually something else entirely? And the, the detail we're seeing is a total accident, uh, somehow. It's worth, it's worth entertaining. It's worth picking through those things that, um, sometimes, sometimes the real dynamic that's going on is not totally evident from just watching the numbers go one way or the other. Well, I think that's a, that's a point worth entertaining. And I guess what concerns me is like, I see, for instance, from Jacobin, um, they're making a lot of hay about sort of like lower level electoral victories for socialists. And I do wonder if this is that kind of illusory growth. It's like it's growth, but it's masking an, a, a more, a, a deeper problem, uh, that like, like the, 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 you know, there's a lot of attempts to sort of reckon with the defeat of Bernie, the uh, and, and what that means, uh, being shut out of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the sort of horror uh, dichotomy between Biden and Trump uh, that we're faced with, and and what it means to be out in the cold right now. Um, so there is reckoning that's going on. Uh, I'm just not sure. If the, if the lower level victories that socialists are achieving are actually indicative of sustained momentum, uh, going forward. When you say lower level victories, do you mean that sort of thing of like trots running for dog catcher and stuff like that and like hailing it as a victory for the proletariat and stuff like that? Uh, no, it's more significant than that. You know, it's like, you know, there's some kind of like, state senator kind of positions that kind of thing it's not it's not like a local dog catcher or like we got on the we got on the the you know uh school board in town or something like that there's there is there is some more significant victories going on than that uh uh rudy and then matt see on that topic 
I mean, as someone who does, who is a bit involved with DSA, and also I was just talking to Steve about this a few hours ago. I think the problem is not so much that the growth happens, but there's like not a system for analysis that distinguishes like, well, this is possible in New York State because well, density, mobilization, young population, versus this is possible in Oklahoma or this is possible in San Francisco. It's possible in rural Washington State. And I guess that's much more what is missing, because if you pay only attention to New York, you'll get the impression that the DSA is growing, and indeed they are growing. And I don't think the problem comes so much that they're not being able to structuralize in New York. It comes from the fact that this is the United States of America, and that a national organization is called the DSA. It's not the DS of NY or the DS of uh, East Bay. So I think that's it's kind of like how... The fact that one part of the party is becoming dominant over the whole rather than of the, that part not being able to grow successfully. And I guess like the recursion problem or how do you make the structures properly recur when one of these structures becomes overbearing is much, I guess, a way to frame it even more in the system for missing. Right. Fair enough. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, you're muted. You're muted, Matt. Whoops. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. What, what, what I'm really afraid of is just that there isn't actually enough like structural coherence, like, uh, um, at the top. Yeah. To, to consciously change mode. Yeah. Like all of this kind of seems as sort of like stuff that just kind of happened and, and, and sort of cohered. Um, uh, uh, which is great. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how viable systems like, you know, like the, 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 that, that is how they wind up building, you know, inclu- including in humans. Like, uh, um, uh, but, you know, like, that you know, it, it's it's not a given that it's ever going to be able to coherent to something that actually can. Um, uh, um, yeah, I I don't know uh, if national will ever matter to me at all. Like, I mean, you know, I I love working in my working groups. You know, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's really good. We've been very functional actually. Um, but like even on like citywide, like I mean, you know, there's very little coordination. Um, uh, uh, and you know, like I don't know. Um, uh, um. And also, the, the, you know, something I do find encouraging is that, um, uh, uh, it, you know, the, the model is starting to work, like, uh, outside of New York, too. Um, uh, so, um, in Tennessee, like, we, we just won, uh, uh, three, like, major primaries for, like, um, um, uh, for Senate and, uh, um, you yeah, know, like, Senate, Senate, like, not, not, not like Congress. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, um, uh, I think uh, another congressional one and, uh, but yeah, 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 some, some serious statewide races in the South. Right. Uh, that's, that's kind of the stuff I was talking about there. Um, uh, and uh, Steve, go ahead. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, and, you know, I apologize a little bit. I'm kind of multitasking with work. Uh, so if I repeat anything, um, sorry about that. But um, just to follow on a little bit, you know, I think there's a, there's two things with respect to this. So, like, and I, I largely agree with, you know, what people have been saying. Um, I mean, I think there have been real significant victories in New York and and lots of other places. I mean, we now have, what, four U.S. House representatives from DSA. I mean, that's like, that's not a truck dog catcher. That's something, and it's growing, right? Um, what I think is missing is, like, the connection between the national and, and local, as as people are saying. But, like, in some sense, like, I almost see this as, like, what is this level of recursion in, in the VSM that, like, how does that map onto it, right? Because we have these lots of local victories, and we have some really big sort of high level national victories that we're getting from like US Congress, but things are very sporadic and decentralized, um, by the nature of it. Uh, and it's really hard to tie that stuff together and tie it in together in a way that like can spread those victories outside of these localized pockets. 
so that, you know, great. We have six city council members in Chicago um, and clearly like they're doing something right. And, you know, it's no small feat to go up against the uh, Albany machine in New York to get as many state senators and people that, that, have, that are there. And but like the lessons don't really transfer. You know, I think that's what a lot of the concern is. Like it doesn't transfer to different cities. And, and I think that like the Jacobin crowd is just so it's very insular. You know, I mean, DSA, if nothing else, has created an immense social network for people to talk to each other and live in that world where, you know, and I think this is partly a product of it generally being younger, like people don't really seem to quite understand what we're up against here. And it's going to take a lot more than even four members of the house at the U S level to like get any sort of traction to win the power that we need and to actually make effective change. Um, we've got some great spokespeople right through like AOC and whatever, like they can message this stuff well and seems to be bringing people into the movement, which I think is a net positive, but none of that's like, I don't know, really going to affect the sort of national or global change that, that I think people think that it might, you know, maybe that's just my own personal skepticism. So I don't know. I mean, none of this is too coherent. This is kind of me just pontificating, but you know, I, I think there's just a real disconnect between like the power people think they can enact. It. Uh, looks like we've lost both. Uh, I was talking while muted. Oh, oh go ahead. Yep. My bad. Um, so I'm, I'm part of a local chapter. I uh, just wanted to weigh in on the DSA bit a little bit. Um, and I think that it's, it's one of those cases where it's uh, like a, if we want to like frame our analysis, the, uh, the purpose of the system is what it does. So like DSA currently, it's been growing. So a lot of the structures around it have been structures primed for growth. Um, and as a result, we kind of have these two competing uh, kind of imaginations of like, well, what's next? Because like, well, we have what, what it does right now, which is growth and manage the growth. Uh, what could it do next? Is the next thing like electoralism? Is the next thing uh, rank and file strategy? Um, but I think what's important to notice is that like uh, those two those two goals um, still don't have that that highest uh, or a relationship with that highest level of analysis because we we I think the uh, someone spoke earlier about how we don't really we're not really taking into consideration the the gravity of like what where we are. Like we have 10 years, um, it is, is getting like a sporadic, uh, house member or so every couple of years. Even if we were to swing like an upward trend in that where we got, uh, like double the amount every year leading up to like climate catastrophe, when do we finally get power to, you know, avert catastrophe or sustain ourselves with the rank and file strategy? Well, we're just seeing corporations mutate left and right. So it becomes even harder to even suggest some like trend over time. Um, so I think right now we are kind of stuck between the, the tools of the past, which are electoralism or rank and file strategy and this kind of impending threat from the future. That's kind of saying like, Hey, we need a larger imagination, but we don't really have, uh, anyone or we have very minimal people at the very top capable of producing that imagination and disseminating that imagination. Which is really wild because we do have a lot of really good speakers in DSA and really great public intellectuals, um, you know, broadening the Robertson window and all that jazz. But uh, internal uh, cohesion in terms of a political identity is actually really weak. Right. There's that system five problem. Uh, <laughs> 
yeah. Well, that is the challenge. Uh, we have now completed uh, the original text of Brain of the Firm. Uh, so that's something. Uh, congratulations to everyone uh, to get through to this part. Uh, and uh, next week, uh, we will recap uh, this section of the book. Uh, so section three of the book, we will recap next week, uh, and then we'll move on to the final stuff uh, about the experience in Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, with, yes? With chapters 16 and 7, like, uh, chapter 16 especially seems pretty light, because um, it's it's kind of a lot of setup. It's like, oh, I got a letter from so-and-so, and there's, a, there's just a bit of background information. It's, it, it doesn't seem like it's especially amenable to a lot of discussion. It gets thicker and thicker as we go along in that section, though, and then chapter 20 is a monster. Um, so it if maybe if we can, we could read ahead a little bit, and if we find that we don't have a lot to say about chapter sixteen, we could just kind of segue into chapter seventeen during that session as well. Yeah, fair enough. In the interest of getting to the, the the big meat at the back of the book is chapter twenty, uh, which we're yeah. gonna, we're going to spend quite a while going through. I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. New, numerous sessions. Yeah. Uh, okay, so good point. But uh, yeah, so read ahead chapter uh, sixteen during this next period, but uh, we have a review uh, session uh, next time, as as Beer has suggested we should do. Um, all right, so thanks, everyone, um, and uh, see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.